The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, April 6th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Senate invoked the nuclear option today, the least aptly named metaphor since Paul Ryan tried to rebrand Planned Parenthood defunding as the baby saver Jesus' favorite act. So Judge Gorsuch will be confirmed by a majority, but less than a supermajority. And we've been hearing about the tough choice the Democrats had to make to keep their powder dry or, as was said so many times, to decide that this was indeed their hill to die on. So why in the hell do they appear to be choosing this hill to die on? Now, if you were to ask me what hill I'd want to die on, my answer would always be, you know what, not this one, some later further hill, Private Nelson. What hill do you want to die on? This one, sir. Me too. What about you, Private? Uh, I got to be totally honest here. I'm going to choose another hill, a hill that we might not even come to or will come to at a later, later date. Private, your forefathers didn't even get to pick their hills. We're fighting for a choice they never had. Well, you know, maybe if we weren't fighting, we wouldn't have to die on a hill. You know, maybe we'd be working a life of customer service. It's not the greatest career, but you know what it's better than? Dying on a hill. This hill. This is your hill to die on. What is wrong with this hill? It's a little sandy, a little dusty. You know, the gravel. It's the grit. It's the grit. It's the just the feel of it. But you know what? Now that I think of it, it's mostly the dying. It's not so much the hill. Do I have to even pick a hill? To be perfectly honest, I prefer a sofa, a divan, or really any piece of overstuffed furniture in a prog bordello if I have to go when I'm a nonagenarian. Can I go with that? No, I gotta pick a hill. Okay, before that, can I request a thorough assessment of the region's topography? Okay, okay, that's not gonna work. What if we spend a little time making some strongly regioned plagiarism arguments? Okay, then I won't have to pick a hill. We can call up some professors, see if anyone's sourcing was off. No? Okay, instead I got to die on a hill. Eh, I tried the plagiarism thing. That usually gets you out of dying on a hill. You know what hill? I pick the next hill. You can't can't see it from here. It's like, eh, just past that other hill. That's right. You guys going to stay here? No problem. All right, good luck in the midterms. On the show today, I pay tribute to a great comedian who said a lot of things that would definitely get him banned from ever doing a Pepsi commercial. Don Rickles. But first, a funny, funny man. At NPR, they call him Mr. Warmth. Actually, while they do say a lot of nice things about Scott Simon, it's usually some other things. It's more centered on the quality of the journalism. But here, in this space, Scott Simon comes clean about a huge bias of his. Guy loves the Cubs. For a century, the Chicago Cubs laid claim to the title least menacing entity in sport. Cute, adorable, lovable, those were the adjectives that modified the word losers. Now let's check in on the other contenders for least menacing entities in sport. There was Eddie the Eagle, but that famous English ski jumper was menacing to himself. There was the Jamaican bobsled team. They were a menace to cinema. What about the San Diego chicken? Ah, a menace to umpires and tykes whose noggins fit squarely within his felt beak, which brings us back to the Cubs. And then, just last year, the Cubs got good, really good. In fact, they won the World Series. Perhaps you heard. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play.
lives. Scott Simon has written a memoir, really a love story, called My Cubs, A Love Story. Scott's the host of NPR's Weekend Edition. But for all of us who ever spent any time at headquarters in NPR, he's just a massive Cubs fan. Hello, Scott. How are you? Hi there, Mike. Nice to talk to you. I know you have a connection to the Cubs beyond just fan, or several connections, familial connections. What did actual Cubs, or the Cubs announcers, or people associated with the Cubs in a professional basis, what did they think of uh, the national perception of the club of the Cubs, that they were lovable losers? Well, my, my uncle Charlie, Charlie Grimm, who was married to my Auntie Marion, was the uh, act- in the famous Rockwell painting called The Dugout which was a Saturday Evening Post uh, cover in uh, September 4, as I recall, 1948. Uh, when I say recall, I don't mean I remember it because I wasn't born. But in any <laughs> event, I, I certainly remember looking up the date. Uncle Charlie is the Cubs manager that you see uh, looking like a basset hound, as he described it, with his you know hand against his cheek at some imagined uh, imbecility that the Cubs have committed on the field. And, and he hated that image because, of course, he was the manager. And he thought that uh, there was nothing lovable about it. If you're going to do it for a living, you might as well uh, you might as well win. So he didn't he didn't like the whole idea of the lovable clawless cubbies. Uh, my godfather, Jack Brickhouse, who um, was the longtime cub announcer, he's the guy who preceded Harry Carey. And while we're on the subject of Uncle Jack, if I may, let's hit back back hey hey, and that was his home run call. <laughs> By the way, I was told a number of years ago by a woman in New York that men of a certain vintage, you can tell that men of a certain vintage are from Chicago if at the moment of highest for romantic fruition, uh-huh. we shout, hey, hey, <laughs> if I might put it that way. In any event, Uncle Jack was a little more comfortable with it because he was actually part, as the cub announcer, of selling Wrigley Field more than the club. Uh, the Cubs were fantastically successful despite being the losingest franchise in baseball. They were from year to year really right behind the Yankees and the Dodgers um, in, in, in terms of ticket sales and television appeal and even national fan base, arguably because they lost. And Uncle Jack was a big part of uh, WGN in Chicago selling itself as the, the whole Cub experience. They didn't mention winning or losing. They mentioned what a great time you could have at the ballpark or watching the Cubs in the middle of the afternoon when you should have been working. Yeah, and it is true. And there is a bust of Uncle, your Uncle Jack Brickhouse, uh, on the Magnificent Mile. And it's right yeah, next to... Yeah, whole statue. Yeah, statue. It's right next to Tribune Tower. And Tribune Tower has these artifacts of the ancient world, which were frankly stolen. But you could touch a piece of the Taj Mahal. And I think more people you know, wanted to... It, it, was, it, was before, it was before people got a little nettlesome about that whole <laughs> yeah, idea before, of you know, cultural yeah. thievery and all that. Yes, there's a segment of the Great Wall of China. But my point is, I think most Chicagoans think that Jack Br- Brickhouse is the truest artifact and the one they want to touch more than the Taj oh, Mahal. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think that's absolutely true. He, he was a great guy. He was a totally great guy, and I wish people remembered him half as much as they, as they remember Harry Carey. But... You know, that's uh, that's that's what we feel in our family. Now, given that the Cubs were disincentivized to win, that they would pack their small and friendly confines no matter what the record, do you think this uh, helped perpetuate the losing streak? You know, I have to reluctantly say yes, uh, because on the one hand, you think, 
well, come on, you know, any anybody who plays for the Cubs, he's a young athlete. He, you know, he's come to the to the club almost certainly after being the best high school athlete that there ever was in the small town in Indiana or his neighborhood of Brooklyn. Uh, and you think, of course, they can't be part of this whole idea of the curse of of the lovable losers. But I, I, I think what I finally concluded over the years is that whenever a player would come to the Cubs, would find out that he'd been drafted by the Cubs or he'd signed by the Cubs or was going to be traded to the Cubs, other players would say to him, oh, you'll have a great time, best ballpark in America, uh, north side of Chicago is great, you will never be a star the way you are on the north side of Chicago. And then they would add, you know, but there, <laughs> but there is this curse thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to believe in it for it to find you. And every time there was a perfectly understandable reverse of fortune, it was just a little too easy to fold it into the whole idea of the lovable losers and, and the curse. Now, I think, for example, if I might uh, parenthetically mention the Boston Red Sox, because I, a number of years ago I wrote a book about Jackie Robinson, they fetishized for years that the problem they had in not winning the pennant, uh, American League pennant versus the Yankees, was what they called the curse of the Bambino, right? the curse of having gotten rid of Babe Ruth. If you take a look at their records in the late 40s and early 50s, they would habitually finish anywhere between two, six, sometimes as close as half a game uh, behind the New York Yankees. They had a chance to sign Jackie Robinson in 1945 before the Brooklyn Dodgers ever did. And I would tell you that it wasn't the curse of not holding on to Babe Ruth. It was the curse of not having the nerve to sign talented African-American ballplayers, not just Jackie Robinson. They weren't the last franchise, which, of course, was the Red Sox, and the Yankees were among the last. But given their history, the Chicago Cubs sort of should have been among the first. And I would tell you that that long streak of losing that began to really fix the image of the Cubs as lovable losers, which really began from the late 40s uh, into the late 50s and arguably even the early 60s, was the residue of not having signed talented African-American ballplayers when they had the chance and and not being among the first to recruit in Latin America. I remember about 10, maybe 12 years ago, ESPN had this special. It was a trial, essentially, between Cubs and oh, Red Sox Oh, I was fans. a witness. And I was going to say, I, and I remember, remember yes. you were called to the stand and some, maybe Dan Shaughnessy or some other Red Sox writers. The whole thing to me uh, encapsulated that there was almost a competition, a competition yes, exactly. to to yeah. uh, compare aggrievement, to see who had it worst, worse. And I wonder... I could see why as a defense mechanism, it's something that you engage in. But I wonder if any of that either got in the way of fandom or actually got in the way of success. You know, I, it's hard to say to what degree, but I think it actually did get in the way of fandom. Uh, it got, And it, it certainly did get in the way of success. Uh, b- because you're right. There was a very unhealthy mentality. And look, it takes an outsider to recognize this. My wife who uh, was living in New York when we met. My wife is French, as you know. And uh, she didn't know much about baseball when... We met, but she knew that the Yankees won a lot and were important to the character of the city of New York. And she was appalled when we began to have a family because the first thing our our daughters are adopted, she didn't want our daughters to be tagged with the mentality of being a Cubs fan. She thought that that would be absolutely unhealthy for them. Speaking of unhealthy, I think another thing that didn't help, according to uh, scholars who've studied the matter, is is the whole aspect of day baseball. Uh, the Cubs still play more day games than any other 
uh, any other franchise. Day baseball is important to the character and the image of that franchise. And Joe Madden, for example, their, their great relatively new manager, has decided to mostly skip batting practice in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he says, if you don't know how to hit by August, you're not going to, uh, you, you know, you're not, you're not going to magically discover how to do it in batting practice in April. But he's also understood that playing so much in the sun as opposed to the cool of the nighttime can be depleting over, over a long season. But more to the point, almost everybody else in baseball was already playing night games. So the Cubs would play night games when they'd be out of town. Then they'd come back home and have to play day games. With all due respect to, let's say, Salt Lake City, I think that's probably a fine place to play day baseball. But in Chicago, that means the game is over by 5 o'clock. And there are lots of places a young ball player can get into trouble uh, after five o'clock at night in Chicago, after midnight in Chicago. So it meant that they were enjoying the city's prodigious nightlife a little bit too much. And also, as scientists, really some biologists uh, guessed, <laughs> it made the Cubs irregular. Mm-hmm. Because it mixed up their <laughs> biological schedules, a lot of the big name Cubs were probably suffering from irregularity, and there was a you know there was a program that was developed in the late sixties and early seventies, Mike called Prunes for the Bruins, where Cub fans would send their favorite laxative to the Cub player of their choice, and you know I've, I'll I'll never forget what we've seen in the newspapers. You'd see pictures of crates of X lax being unloaded in front of Ron Santos' locker. Just just so inspiring. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I really I really dragged the conversation down a level, didn't I? I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, it doesn't no. take me long to do that. Yeah. So in 2016, when it was apparent from spring training that the Cubs had put together this great lineup with great young players and their second and third year players were gelling and Joe Madden's the best manager in baseball. And then they go on this epic winning streak. I know that uh, someone said to you, or it was widely remarked, this year, every everybody's a Cubs fan. How'd that make you feel? Oh, yeah. I overheard that at a banquet at, at the Smithsonian Institution where our friend Rick Bayless, the fancy chef, was getting a prize. And Rick and I locked eyes like, what do you mean this year everyone's a Cubs fan? You are not a Cubs fan until you've been what we've been through, for Christ's sake. You're not a Cubs fan until you've you know been a pitch away from going to the World Series and seen a fan catch it instead of the third left fielder. Um, you know you're not a Cubs fan until you've seen your team lose a nine-game lead to the New York Mets and not go to the World Series. I could go on. The whole idea that you could be a Cubs fan without paying your dues was something that quite affronted me. But I guess I have to accept it as the best alternative to continuing to lose. If this whole thing is a love story, it strikes me as it's a courtship for most of the time. Sometimes the girl gets away. All the time the girl gets away. Sometimes she evades you. Sometimes you just miss her. (laughs) But now that the marriage has happened, uh, I I think of it as not the honeymoon period, but a period, this period, where I I presume the Cubs will be good and in contention for years to come. Do you see it changing into like the fourth or fifth or sixth year of a marriage where you have to... It's perhaps not the same sort of passionate love, but there is a deeper uh, connection there with the Cubs. How do you think this will change your love? Mike, I like that so much. I'm going to start saying it in all (laughs) interviews from now on. Thank you very much. And of course, as you know, I will quote you the first couple times, yeah. but after that, it'll it'll become my thought. I, you know, I think that's very, uh, and I, 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 not a word I would that would come easily to mind when speaking of you, but I find that a very mature perception. <laughs> um, 
I, I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, as I sometimes say to our daughters when we watch rom-cons together, you know, the, the movie, our daughters are almost 14 and 10, uh, you know, the movie almost always ends when the, when the couple looks at each other with love-struck eyes and they, and they go off together. The real, the real love comes, uh, the real test of love, and the real, the real joy and glory of love comes years after that, when you are a working couple and have taken each other into your lives and made accommodations with each other and identify with each other in the world. And that, I think, is what's going to happen now uh, with the Chicago Cubs fans and their teams. It, it has to, and I think will become uh, a mature relationship. Look, the Cubs have always had a lot of money to work with. They've always had a huge fan base to work with, not only, uh, you know, the north side of Chicago, which uh, in and of itself is is bigger than almost any other city, save for New York and L.A., and for that matter, a national fan base and, and history and tradition. They just haven't always played like it. Uh, now people will know that they can win. Now people will know that the barriers that, that seem to stand in our way can be overcome. And, you know, they'll be expected to be in the running every year, just as, as, as we accept, expect uh, Meryl, uh, Meryl Streep to be at least nominated for an Oscar. And, you know, I, I think this is something that we can wear. But the hardest thing to do in professional sports is to repeat a championship, not to win it the first time, but to repeat it. To lock into your metaphor once again, I, I think that's also the test of love, which is not just to fall in love, but to, to keep it alive in your life. My Cubs, A Love Story by Scott Simon. Thanks so much, Scott. Mike, wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Baseball season's underway. Well, you better get ready for a brand new And now the spiel, the merchant of venom, the king of zing. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Warmth, Don Rickles, died today. I saw Rickles in Las Vegas maybe 15 years ago. It was one of those Grateful Dead at the Fillmore type experiences. And while I laughed, I also hurt. Rickles always said he gave it equally to all sides, but that does not take away the pain when it's your people who he's zinging. I was wounded because, and I don't admit this, all the time or really dwell on it, but I was wounded because of my heritage. And because of that, some of Rickles' cuts cut a little deeper. I am, you see, on my father's side, one quarter hockey puck. Patty made the seating arrangements and this hockey puck, Bill Anderson, from Jersey, who nobody knows, is right in the front. And I don't wear my hockey puck heritage on my sleeve, unlike apparently this guy right here in the front. The guy in the front here in the hockey puck sweater went crazy. <laughs> the one derelict yelled at that. <laughs> and look at this lady. Ma'am, there's a show going on. The Italian guy's like, what I miss? And the Jews in the back are like, did we miss the early bird special? It's okay, lady. Someone will come by to mop up the spittle. This guy over here is acting like a mouse in a state prison. Here's some mud. Finish your hut. Sir, nice jacket. Grab some cotton candy. You could work the circus. 
I can't do Rickles. Only Rickles can do Rickles. Rickles' act belonged in an era with less sensitivity. That's one way to put it. By today's standards, it's not just cutting and politically incorrect. You definitely see it as racist. The jokes about European ethnicities come off as museum pieces. But then when he does the Amos and Andy accents or the squinty eyes, ching chong, ching cadence, whenever an Asian person is mentioned, that is really out of touch. A couple of years ago, the DVD set of his sitcom CPO Sharky came out. Apparently a huge audience for that one. But with it came the warning, I'll read it, some of the jokes and ethnic references in the show, quote, would most likely not be allowed on network TV today and reflect the tenor of the times. But to Rickles and the audiences that he worked in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, ethnic humor was more acceptable than ever uttering a curse word. So in a way, Rickles is a one-man litmus test of our society's definition of what is profane. But Rickles' ethnic humor, his rat-a-tat roasts, his slurry of slurs, wasn't some underground phenomenon, you have to realize. He was so mainstream, he played Ronald Reagan's second inaugural. Here he is after being introduced and taking the mic from the diminutive actor Emmanuel Lewis. First black kid I ever saw, he'll definitely never play basketball. Then he went on to do the material that wouldn't be cringeworthy to the modern audience. He filleted the band leader, he lit into the Secretary of State, and he gave it to Reagan himself. And 20 years earlier, in fact, he roasted then-Governor Reagan, and he gave even less quarter then. I kid you, sir. You are a politician. Black, white, Jew, Gentile. We're all working for one cause, to figure out how you became governor. <laughs> That was comedy back then. Sticking it to Ronald Reagan, the jester punching up. An insensitive by today's standards racial joke, that is the bully punching down. And I'm not going to say that you shouldn't be offended, but I have watched a lot of Rickles and I do have an analysis. The first thing to note is that his phrasing, his word choice, his facial expressions, his mannerisms were sublime. He was a pure clown and he embodied his persona. During roasts, when he dared insult icons like Johnny Carson or Frank Sinatra, it worked so well because the famous people themselves gave permission to laugh at them because they themselves were cracking up. And when Frank Sinatra laughs at a Frank Sinatra joke, he says it's okay to laugh at this joke because he speaks for all Frank Sinatra. But when Rickles uses racial humor, even if Sammy Davis Jr. is losing it, He can't, Sammy Davis can't laugh for all black people. And sometimes, I have read in recent years, I've been reading about Sammy, sometimes Sammy wasn't truly even laughing for himself. Rickles was a great joke writer who also employed great joke writers. And he would size up a subject and he would go for what cut him or her. And when it's a famous person, there's a lot of content to work with and you don't have to just rely on what's on the surface. But in a nightclub act, Rickles attacked mannerisms, style of dress, and yeah, also ethnicities. Back then, it was seen as more impolite than immoral. And to audiences at the time, it didn't seem worse than saying to Sinatra, make yourself at home, Frank, punch somebody. Today, there'll be a lot of glowing obituaries with the to-be-sure graphs acknowledging that Rickles would have been offensive by today's standards. Tomorrow, there will be a couple of reaction pieces along the lines of Rickles wasn't funny, he was just racist. 
I say we give Rickles the last word on his passing, a last word that embodies all of what I've been talking about. This is from a David Letterman appearance in 1983. He had just mocked the band's black guitar player using an Amos and Andy voice and then told Letterman he enjoys going to the beach for the opportunity to make bodily noises. Let's have Rickles take it from there. And the wife's answer to that is, you're a crude person and I'm not going to put up with it and refuses to leave me. Yeah. Uh, because she's coming into a ton of money when I take the big cab. Oh, don't, now don't, don't talk like that. Well, I kid about that. Yeah. Death, we must face it. You know, we, mu- we must face it. I, I know when my time comes, I know I'll get a big turnout. I figure me for about 40 cars. <laughs> I figure you for one wagon and the black kid. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson. I think like me, you have been listening to her work for months and months now. And in all honesty, can we agree that we should say, good luck getting a construction job? Just producer Chris Berube is over here saying what I miss. Executive producer of Slave Podcast, Steve Lichtai. Steve, have a cookie. Andy Bauer is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And there he is responsible for giving us hundreds and hundreds of shows, thousands and thousands of hours of entertainment. None of it good. The gist, as much as we stand for things, we also stand against some things. Uh, I would say we stand against racism. We stand against intolerance. We stand against close-mindedness. And indeed, can we all agree, we stand against Belgians. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.